much, Moshe. And thank you, everyone here, too. I, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be able to uh, give this lecture here at Oxford. I, I consider it a real honor to do this. I was looking at the list of other speakers for your seminar series here uh, this semester, and uh, I'm just astounded at the, uh, the speaker list. I, I, I'm humbled, you know, to, to be listed amongst that group. It's, uh, it's really quite an impressive group. And I, I had mentioned to Tim earlier today, as I wish I could have been here to hear all of them. And he said, well, you can. You can look at the website. And <laughs> so I may just do that, because it, it really is a, a great group. And, uh, I'm just very thankful uh, to be here. Um, I just want to say a few words about this topic first, and then uh, we'll get started with it. Uh, this is a topic that uh, I've had an interest in for quite a, a, a while. Um, I actually did my master's thesis uh, looking at the linkages between rail transit and uh, urban development. Uh, I, I then uh, got more interested in air transport during much of the 1990s, and I did some work on uh, the linkages between air transportation and economic development, and airports and economic development. And then uh, in this uh, the first decade of the 2000s, I've uh, become more involved with the Intermodal Transportation Institute, so I've looked at this relationship from a uh, multiple modal perspective. So I've looked at freight as well as passenger modes and uh, how it relates uh, to economic development. And most recently, I've uh, become very you know, interested in uh, large infrastructure projects, and the planning behind those projects. I've received a lot of inquiries uh, from the media, for instance, about large infrastructure projects and uh, whether or not uh, we should be doing these things or not. So it's just sort of drawn me in. And um, the, the real uh, kicker was when uh, the Obama administration was starting to talk about investing in transport infrastructure as a uh, part of the economic stimulus package. And there was a healthy debate about that. And so that's really what prompted me to do this research, which I'm going to be presenting today. It's largely a a review of previous research. Um, so uh, some of this, maybe most or if not all of it, may be familiar to you. But there are some specific examples that I'm going to be providing that uh, set it within the context of what's been going on within the United States in uh, recent years. So I would like to start by, first of all, uh, focusing on what happened in 2008 with regards to the economic crisis in that period. Uh, as I'm sure you all know, uh, this was a, a huge devastating blow to the U.S. economy as well as uh, to the world economy that involved a $700 billion U.S. government bank bailout, uh, unprecedented uh, in its size and scope. And uh, as a result of that, uh, there was quite a bit of uh, economic fallout that ensued. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped by half from 14,000 to 7,000 during the latter part of 2008. And then the U.S. unemployment rate uh, went up from uh, about 5% or so up to 11%. And now it's, uh, it's hovering right at around 9%. And this has been a, a very uh, sticky and serious problem that the government has been trying to address. Shortly after uh, Barack Obama was elected president of the United States to replace George W. Bush, uh, this was really the first item on his agenda. And uh, right from the beginning, there was quite a bit of debate about the need 
for some sort of an economic stimulus package. Uh, there were images that evoked the memory of Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the uh, Great Depression and the period of the New Deal, uh, Keynesian stimulus, uh, work programs, getting people to work. Uh, this was sort of the, uh, the discussion at the time, and it was felt that this was something that uh, was needed to jumpstart the economy. Uh, the other aspect, political aspect associated with this was that uh, the government uh, bailed out the banks to the tune of $700 billion, and so people on Main Street were wondering, yes, you've helped out Wall Street, what about us here on Main Street? And so there, there was a growing political sentiment in favor of, of uh, helping out uh, regular people as well. And so uh, this is what led to the economic stimulus uh, going forward. This was happening within a context of previous oh, 10 years or so, in which there were an increasing number of reports and studies about a transportation infrastructure crisis within the United States. Volumes of trade and transport at our ports and airports on our roadways were increasing at very dramatic rates. Uh, not only that, but the infrastructure itself uh, was in need of uh, major repair. And so uh, there has been quite a bit of discussion and reporting about this infrastructure crisis. International trade has been a main driver of a lot of this. Um, if you just look at the figures with regards to the growth in uh, TEUs, over time in the United States, it's, uh, it's been growing enormously. That graph there shows the uh, uh, past growth as well as the projected growth. I will say this about that figure. This was before the economic crisis occurred. After the economic crisis, I think that projections into the future would be uh, much less sanguine because of the problems with regards to the large number of, uh, of imports that the United States had been receiving, especially from China and from Asia. But that container traffic has dropped off dramatically as a result of the economic crisis, and it's likely that it will not grow to the same levels or at the same rate in, in, into the future. It may have a much more modest uh, path of growth or even actual decline once the economy starts to, uh, to pick up again. But nevertheless, uh, what had been the previous 10 years or so was pretty significant growth. And if you look at growth in trade as a percentage of the U.S. GDP from 1990 to 2000, uh, it was uh, a doubling from 13% to 26% in that one decade. And then projections out to 2020 indicated it could rise to as much as 35% of U.S. GDP. So clearly international trade has been and it's expected to continue to be a growing part, a growing percentage of economic activity. Whether it continues to grow at that rate though is very much in doubt because of uh, the current conditions. When you have growing volumes of trade uh, and large amounts flowing into the ports, um, that's going to have an impact on the land side as well, and particularly with regards to highways where truck volumes are at uh, very high levels, have been at high levels in certain of the key linkages, and the projections for years into the future, such as in 2020, show that there will be an increasing number of these links of the highway system that will be severely congested. So this is, is one of the, uh, the impacts that the state DOTs, state departments of transportation, as well as the federal government, have to deal with. 
the uh, Associate, American Association for, of State Highway and Transportation Officials, otherwise known as AASHTO, came out with a number of reports uh, over the last five or so years. And in this one, they identified certain bottlenecks around the key metropolitan areas that are part of the system and uh, indicated that there would be significant problems associated with increasing freight transport as well as continued passenger transport at those bottleneck locations. Traffic congestion itself has been on a, uh, a, a trajectory where over the last 20 to 30 years, every major and even small metropolitan area in the country has been increasing, uh, has been experiencing increased traffic congestion. Uh, the most significant statistic on this chart is down here at the bottom right, where the average annual hours of delay per capita have gone up roughly double from 1987 to 2004. Um, more and more people are uh, objecting to speed, having to sit in uh, mind-numbing traffic congestion. Many hours are wasted, uh, fuel is wasted, all sorts of negative repercussions result from uh, this extreme congestion in traffic. And then added to this was the catastrophe of the I-35W bridge collapse in Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 1st, 2007. This was really a, a devastating uh, event. Um, 13 people died, uh, which uh, it's surprising that that few uh, died given the, the scale of the catastrophe, uh, but this really was one of those uh, alarm bells that uh, sounded and made people realize that we had some problems with regards to our infrastructure and uh, it underscored the difficulty with regards to the bridge conditions in the United States. Um, these charts show that a, a large per percentage of all the bridges in the country are 40 years old or older. Uh, the earliest bridges that were built as part of the interstate highway system are now over 50 years old. And uh, as bridges get older, uh, they uh, are going to become more uh, functionally deficient and structurally deficient over time so that there will be continuing problems with, uh, with our bridge infrastructure. So all of these things put together constituted what was considered to be a transportation infrastructure crisis. And uh, just a few years ago, there was a uh, Transportation Policy, Policy and Revenue Study Commission that was formed uh, to investigate what needed to be done and how would such a system that would upgrade our transport infrastructure be financed? What's the best way to do it? And they laid out a number of options in the paper, but the bottom line of it was that they felt that um, it was critical to America's future to create and sustain the preeminent surface transportation system in the world. So it was a very strong statement on behalf of support for transportation infrastructure investment. Um, this was a report that was just a part of the mix that led up to the decisions regarding the uh, stimulus uh, package. There were some opposing perspectives, though, that were voiced during this debate. One of those had to do with the nature of public spending in Japan during the period from 1990 to 2000 or even beyond that. And this was Japan's so-called lost decade in which there was an enormous amount of money that was invested in transport infrastructure uh, as a way to stimulate economic growth, economic development. 
and these investments are very controversial. There are a number of studies that showed that uh, they did not result in the kind of impact, economic impact, that was uh, desired. Uh, others, though, did say that it did have some contribution to economic growth. In particular, one of the projects that was identified was the uh, Hamada Marine Bridge, which uh, connected Hamada to a small, sparsely populated island. Uh, there were a lot of questions about whether that project was really necessary. And uh, that was a $70 million project overall. And by mentioning that specific project, it brought to mind another project in the United States that people were very familiar with. And that was the uh, proposed Gravina Island Bridge in Alaska, which has been, been dubbed the Bridge to Nowhere. Uh, this was initially included in the 2005 Safety Louvre transportation legislation. Uh, would have linked the city of Ketchikan to the island where its airport is located, uh, on which only 50 people lived. And so, um, at a cost of $400 million, uh, this became a symbol of uh, pork barrel politics. And John McCain, in fact, uh, pointed this one out as a particularly egregious example of um, pork barrel politics of uh, earmarks out of control, where Congress can just sort of write in which projects they want without it having to go through a rigorous evaluation process. This became somewhat of a political hot potato for McCain because after he had won the Republican nomination for uh, president uh, in 2008, he appointed Sarah Palin as his running mate who was at that time the governor of Alaska, who initially supported this project because it was going to Alaska. She quickly backtracked, though, and claimed that uh, she changed her mind and she was not in support of this project because, uh, uh, well, because she changed her mind. <laughs> this, was, uh, this was not something she was, was inclined to support any longer. Okay, so with that as kind of the background uh, and the context for the, for the uh, for the paper. I just wanted to say the kinds of things that I'll be doing here in terms of the paper itself. Uh, I will first start with a conceptual and theoretical background and then review the empirical literature uh, at least over the, uh, the previous uh, 20 years or so. Uh, and then in particular focus on three of the recent debates in the United States. The American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, which was the stimulus package. Uh, a recent project in New Jersey, which has got, garnered a lot of attention nationally uh, because the governor there has, uh, has stopped the project, even though it's considered to be a very important one. And then a few words about the uh, proposed federal high-speed rail program and some of the controversies that that has engendered. And then I'll wrap up with conclusions and areas for future research. So to start, um, again, I, when I uh, started this project, I, I really was interested just to uh, go back and to revisit the literature in this area and um, to, to, to kind of put, the, put an argument together. Sort of the thought I had in my mind was, uh, you know, what if, uh, what if President Obama called me and asked me, you know, Andy, what do you think? Uh, you think we should invest? in this transport infrastructure? Do you think this is going to actually help our economy? And will this, will this uh, create jobs? Will this uh, improve our economic condition? And so I thought, well, 
just in case. He calls me. <laughs> I better do a little bit of research on it, so I have a, a reasonably decent answer. Did he call? No, he never answered. <laughs> but I'm still waiting. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I did look through uh, quite a bit of, of literature, including David's work on transport uh, and economic development, uh, and all of this has, has informed my perspective on this relationship. This is a chart that I put together that just in very simple terms lays out what is the standard uh, orthodox view with regards to the impact of transport investment on economic growth and economic development. And uh, some of the measures that are typically used to chart that relation. So in terms of transport infrastructure itself, uh, the measures would include things such as the physical extent of the system, so, uh, like highway miles, or the uh, monetary investment that's being uh, put into it. Uh, for economic impacts, there are a variety of, of these uh, uh, that could be fit into the category of direct impacts as well as indirect or larger impacts. And things such as output, productivity, cost of production, employment, income wages, property values are all different attributes, different measures to show what effect the transport infrastructure is having on the economy. Also, there are a number of studies that focus explicitly on accessibility and the role that transport infrastructure plays in changing levels of accessibility. And the measurement of those things would be uh, through travel time, travel cost, and various nodal measures. And then I also put in here the uh, dimension of cohesion, which is another part of the economic development story. If accessibility can be improved as a result of transport infrastructure, then it's likely that there, or there's a chance that there will be greater cohesion amongst those areas that are linked to the transport lines, which then in the long run may have an impact uh, uh, economically. The other thing that I have on this chart, the importance of scale and the importance of time frame. When looking at the studies of this relation, these are critical concerns here. Uh, scale in terms of the geographic scale, uh, what level at which you're looking at, as well as the geographic context. Uh, what countries are you looking at? Uh, are you looking at developed countries or developing countries? Because the results can differ greatly depending upon these contextual issues. And the time frame is also quite critical here too. Uh, if you look at different periods of time, you get quite different results. These are things that uh, some studies, uh, especially those from uh, economists, I don't want to single out economists, but economists tend not to be as concerned with scale and time frame issues. Uh, geographers, I think, are a little bit more uh, clued in to that, um, but it's an important, these are very important dimensions that have to be considered when looking at these kinds of studies. So then I wanted to look at the classics, uh, look at the foundations for what we know about this relation between transport, infrastructure, adjustment, and uh, economic development impacts. So I relied upon the traditional economic and economic geography perspectives, you know, the things I learned when I was you know, back at school and you know, the, the textbook stuff. So um, you know, again, I wanted to make this understandable to those who may not have had a background in this area. So I wanted this to be more widely uh, approachable. Um, first of all, in terms of, of economic analysis, and specifically microeconomic analysis, uh, it's pretty clear what the argument is here 
as you increase the supply of transport and the demand uh, will respond accordingly um, to the generalized cost per trip being lower and an increased number of trips. So as more transport is provided, as more people utilize that transport, there should, at least in theory, be economic benefits as a result of that increased propensity to travel. At least that's the standard orthodox theory with regards to how this works. This is measured most often in the form of cost-benefit analysis, and most projects still are evaluated on the basis of cost-benefit analyses. Uh, at, the micro, at the macroeconomic scale, uh, a similar kind of calculation is done as transport infrastructure is provided, efficiencies are increased, and the costs of production inputs should be reduced as a result of the improvements in transport infrastructure. Uh, this type of analysis is usually done by using a production function approach in which uh, uh, output elasticities are calculated so you can measure what sort of an impact the investment in infrastructure is providing in terms of the uh, output elasticity on private capital. Whether or not private capital is being pulled in, whether there's a crowding in effect, whether you're generating more economic investment, or in some cases where these projects might result in a crowding out effect where there will be decreases in private capital investment. In the geography literature uh, and economic literature, there's quite a bit in terms of the impact of transportation on promoting trade, interregional trade. Classical trade theory uh, does discuss this to a large extent. And in the uh, geography field, Edward Ullman's three bases of spatial interaction uh, was a, a key, key element in terms of understanding how this works. That through complementarity, transferability, and, and intervening opportunities, you can say something about the nature of spatial interaction between places. Uh, the classic example is where you have two regions that are, are separate, that aren't connected, each have to provide all of the various economic sectors on their own. So it would be an autarky situation in terms of trade. If you open up a trade opportunity, if there is a linkage that's provided between those regions, then a number of things begin to happen. You begin to see more specialization in terms of economic production. Certain sectors become more dominant than others. That increases overall productivity. It increases the overall pool of resources available to uh, both of the regions. And overall economic growth and economic output increases. At least this is the theory behind it. Uh, and so there's a number, there are a number of studies that have talked about the role that this plays in terms of improving trade and also improving economic development. In the area of transport and industrial location, there is a, a strong historical literature that uh, underscores the importance of transport to uh, industrial location. The classical industrial location theory of uh, Weber et al. Uh, talk about and emphasize the role of minimizing transport costs or finding those locations that are best suited to assembling raw materials, producing raw materials, and then distributing the finished products. Uh, and there are many good examples, such as the uh, case of the U.S. iron and steel industry, in which bringing together the coal and the iron ore and limestone using the Great Lakes system of transport resulted in a certain spatial pattern of iron steel manufacturing in western Pennsylvania, northeast Ohio, and in general the Great Lakes region, 
related to the proximity of these key resources and the transport costs involved in moving those resources. A number of studies in firm behavior have also shown the importance of transport, uh, where there are surveys that are done that show that companies value uh, being close to, I mean, proximity to various forms of transportation. Uh, I know in the work that I did with air transportation, that was a very key factor for a number of firms, especially uh, high-tech firms, producer services firms, that considered proximity to an airport to be a critical factor in their locational decision. In the new economic geography of Krugman and, uh, and Associates, Transport costs play an important role as far as core periphery dynamics are concerned, as well as uh, agglomeration economies, where you have the development of clusters or specialized regions that are particularly good in certain economic sectors. Transport plays a key role in providing a competitive advantage for those particular regions. It's one of the factors in the mix behind why those regions grow and develop as, uh, as world-class regions for certain industrial production. And then finally, uh, there's a new role of transport in economic growth that has been uncovered by uh, researchers both in the freight and passenger arenas. In uh, freight logistics, uh, the realization that the processes of production today rely very heavily on transport as an integral part of the production process. So it's no longer just simply an external factor, but it's now integrated into the processes themselves through just-in-time inventory, rolling inventories, uh, and, and uh, utilizing the transport as a form of warehousing itself. So the whole notion of transport as a derived demand is being challenged by that research. Likewise, the notion of transport as derived demand is challenged by the work in passenger mobilities, where, in fact, the transport itself is a part of the ongoing activity. Uh, previously, transport had been thought of only as being a negative. It's just something to overcome. But there is now uh, increasing research looking at how we are utilizing the time that we're spending in transport to do other things. It's the uh, result of being in, in a, uh, a very, very mobile society and how best to utilize uh, the time we spend doing that. Historical models and historical uh, development theory, uh, and spatial economic theory, also have discussed this issue with regards to the role of transport. And there are a number of models that have shown how urban centers have emerged as a result of stages of transport sequence, transport network development. The classic is the Tafe, Morrill, and Gould model from the early 1960s, but there have been other additions to this that show that those places that are linked to transport networks uh, and have other factors as well grow, going for them are the ones that grow and become the major centers in terms of economic production. Uh, places that are bypassed tend not to uh, be too successful. They're the ones that, that uh, have, have difficulties. It's also led to this, uh, the theories of growth poles and spread and backwash effects with regards to lagging regions, what could be done to try to stimulate areas. And transport has always been considered as one of the factors in economic development strategies to try to stimulate development in these lagging regions. This is uh, a little bit of some insight that I gained from uh, working on the, the project where we were investigating Denver's in new international airport. 
And one of the commentators at that time was questioning why was Denver, which admittedly not the biggest city in the, in the world, about two and a half million people in the metro area, why was it building one of the world's largest airports? And this is sort of a tongue-in-cheek answer. Uh, he claimed that Denver suffers from this phenomenon called bypass phobia. That uh, this goes back to the early days when Denver was first founded as a mining community, and its future was threatened when the Transcontinental Railroad had decided to bypass Denver and to be built through Cheyenne, Wyoming, because of the uh, more gradual terrain of the Rocky Mountains through Wyoming instead of Colorado. Uh, the early town leaders of Denver quickly uh, got together and decided that they needed to build a spur rail line from Denver to Cheyenne to ensure that Denver would still be connected to the main transcontinental line. And they quickly did it, and uh, the future of Denver was thus secured. And so there are many other stories in the history of the city and of other cities in this part of the country in which those linkages to transport were seen as absolutely vital, existential to these communities. So it's kind of built into the DNA of these places that they need to be connected. And here is where we get into my whimsical moment uh, where I talk about the, uh, the movie Cars, and I don't know if any of you have seen this or have kids, but you know, my kids at home uh, have watched this movie a number of times, and I've watched this movie a number of times. And you know, one of the, the storylines in the movie is that this small town out in the west uh, was bypassed by the uh, highway. It used to be on Route 66, and now with the new interstate coming through, the town was bypassed and basically was just uh, drying up. The, the business is going away, and it no longer was a viable town. And so uh, for a whole generation of young kids who have grown up watching this movie, I think that this message has gotten through to them about the importance of transport linkages to uh, economic development, economic growth, and the viability of small towns. The history of the western United States and the Great Plains region is uh, scattered with examples of towns that just got started and never made it. They failed and all that's left are the graveyards of the people who tried to start this place. Uh, so it's a very real issue for a lot of people in more isolated areas. And then finally, transport and urban land use, land values. Uh, there's quite a bit of, of literature, uh, strong uh, evidence about the relation between transport and uh, urban development, urban land values. Of course, this goes back to the early work from Von Thunen in agriculture, but then applied to cities by Alonzo and others. And if one looks at the evolution of the growth of the city, it's very clear that you could link the periods of growth to different periods of innovation in transport technology. And the most recent period has been, of course, the era of highways and beltways, in which, especially in the United States, metropolitan areas have just expanded outward at an enormous pace. And uh, that's where most of the development is occurring now, is on the periphery at least it has been over the last 50 years. We're starting to see some counter trends in the direction towards increased development within the central cities, around transit stations, and more transit-oriented development, but that's a more recent phenomenon, and still fairly small in comparison to the overall thing. With those as kind of a backdrop uh, of the foundations of the linkages between transport and economic development, I just want to say a few things about some of the uh, conditions associated with it, the conditional degree and direction of causality associated with it. 
Uh, it's important to remember that transport is only one of several factors uh, to the, the, the propensity for there to be economic development. And in fact, there are many other things that have to be there. It's not just a simple direct cause and effect relationship. It's not just if X then Y, but it has to be A, B, C, D, E, et cetera, et cetera, and X then Y, um, which suggests that transportation uh, may be ne necessary, but not necessarily sufficient condition. Uh, there's also the view that transportation is neither a necessary nor sufficient condition. And so this, the question of the role of transport, the degree of causality, is still very much an open question. It's clear that there are diminishing returns associated with transport in regions that are already fairly well developed in terms of transport infrastructure. Uh, each additional uh, marginal improvement is going to have less and less of an effect overall in places where you're starting with a relatively clean slate or where the technology is at a lower level and you introduce a much better, more efficient technology, the benefits are expected to be much greater. The question of direction of causality is also important in the, in the sense of whether or not transport is a leading or lagging indicator of development, whether it actually leads the process or whether it is responsive to already existing economic development that's occurring for other reasons. And then finally, the importance of context, which, uh, which has been recognized in other research and uh, I, I fully, uh, fully agree with here too. The other thing I wanted to mention with regards to this is work that I did looking at airports and urban growth. We did a study at Denver International Airport and in the end, uh, even though there were uh, pretty high, uh, highly purported uh, results, highly purported impacts, of the, uh, the building of the airport and the expected economic growth, in the end, um, our statement was that airports are not a panacea for lagging economic development. In other words, it's not going to be a miracle uh, to improve economic development. Conditions have to be right in order for you to move forward with a large infrastructure project such as an airport. In the case of Denver, there were strong transportation reasons for why that airport should be built. And where you have a strong foundation for why the transport should be built, there's a strong fundamental transport reason, the chances for economic development occurring are much greater. If you don't have that underlying basis, you're not going to see the kind of economic development that, uh, that you might be expecting. And this led, to us, uh, led us to consider this notion of field of dreams when the airport was being proposed. The CEO of American Airlines, Bob Crandall, had said that uh, this plan to build DIA was just simply a field of dreams and that uh, they were under this delusion that if you build it, uh, they will come. And he was speaking specifically about whether American Airlines would hub in Denver. And as it turned out, uh, they didn't, even though uh, projections were, were based upon American Airlines hubbing in Denver. Uh, it didn't really matter in the long run because uh, United continued to hub there, and uh, Frontier Airlines is now hub, and Southwest has a major presence, so we have three large airlines that are all uh, servicing uh, Denver. So the airport itself uh, came out okay, but there was a lot of, of debate about the degree to which it would be utilized. Some places, some airports in the United States, it greatly expanded their facilities, but then the hubbing airlines left, or they didn't build to the extent that they thought, which left those cities with a real problem. So these are all 
concerns that have to be considered when thinking about uh, investing in transport infrastructure. A few alternative theoretical perspectives as well. Uh, and these are mostly on the side of caution or outright uh, rejection of the need for, for increased transport infrastructure investment. Uh, there is the limited government free market perspective, which is quite alive and well in the United States, as exemplified by uh, various think tanks like the Cato Institute, Reason Foundation, and Heritage Foundation. Uh, they have been writing a number of reports about uh, excessive transportation investment, uh, and the basic argument is that uh, the private sector is much more efficient. Government shouldn't be doing this sort of thing. In fact, government shouldn't be doing much of anything at all. And that whatever transportation we need should be done through privatization, through increased tolling, and through congestion pricing. So uh, it's very much a user fee oriented approach and uh, limiting the role of government as much as possible. Uh, another perspective is that um, while it's important for government to invest in certain types of infrastructure, maybe there are sectors other than transportation that will yield a greater economic development return. Uh, perhaps other physical infrastructure systems might be more amenable to improving economic development overall, or social infrastructural systems might deserve to, uh, to have the investments there. Uh, in particular, educational systems, which are uh, <clears throat> being threatened by budget cutbacks. And so in a political sense, then, you get into uh, some very uh, uh, divisive battles with regards to where the government funds should be best used, what's going to provide the most bang for the buck in terms of, uh, of the investments themselves. And then the role of transport and sustainable development, which is a very, very important issue and one that, that, uh, that I will talk about some more later in the paper as well. And it asks the fundamental question, is more transport investment always better? Is more always better? Is unlimited mobility uh, possible or desirable? Uh, but it's really not. Uh, you, you can't have unlimited mobility. There's a cost associated with it, uh, not just in terms of <clears throat> finances, but also in terms of environmental and social externalities. We don't want to see our regions covered by highways and transport lines going everywhere. So there are some real fundamental limits to how much you really want to have. Uh, also, uh, interesting work that David's been involved with in the thought about decoupling transport growth and economic growth, which is a really provocative area. Uh, it really goes against what so much of our traditional theory has been teaching us, that these things are somehow inextricably linked together, that you got to have one uh, as well as the other. But <coughs> I think it is a, a, an important exercise, an important thought process to think about ways in which we can emphasize certain types of transport growth and uh, also uh, contributing to economic growth, that it's not just simply the total sheer volume of transport or the amount of miles or kilometers that are being traveled that results in economic growth, but it's the effectiveness of the transport itself uh, in particular instances, particular circumstances. So that's an important area as well. Um, some transport modes are more sustainable and are more beneficial for long-term economic development so that uh, we can take a closer look and be more selective about the types of transport. Uh, 
uh, and that is an important area that needs needs further consideration. When I was doing this research, one of the things I discovered by looking at the literature, what I found was that there seemed to be somewhat of a disconnect between the economic impact literature and the sustainability literature. Most of the studies that were looking at the economic impacts of transport really did not consider the sustainability dimensions. They were looking at things through economics lens. They were not looking at it through a sustainability lens. Um, likewise, in the sustainability literature, uh, I feel that there typically is not as much of an attention given to the economic uh, aspect of transport. So the role of sustainable transport in the long term economic development is something I think that deserves more attention. <coughs> it's partly because of some of the contradictions in the sustainability concept itself, where there is this tension between the environmental, social, and economic forces they might, and usually, well, I don't know about usually, but in many cases, are, are at odds with one another as opposed to working in concert with one another. And so there, there are some uh, interesting disconnects here. But, again, I think it's important to be thinking about these things in a more holistic fashion. And one of the challenges is incorporating uh, more fully the social and, and environmental factors in the economically driven cost-benefit analysis. So many of the cost-benefit analyses on individual projects are really focused solely on the economics and do not give the social and environmental factors uh, enough consideration. And so those things need to be integrated in a much better fashion. Okay, with that as a theoretical background, I'd like to just take a look at some of the empirical literature. First, I'll summarize some of the pre-2000 period and then analyze what I found uh, of studies in the post-2000 period. The early studies, at least in the United States, dealt with the impact of the U.S. interstate highway system. And there were a number of studies that showed how the U.S. interstate highway system had a pretty dramatic impact on economic growth for those towns that were connected to the interstate highway system. The rise of the Sun Belt in the U.S., the growth of cities in the South and West, can be attributable, at least in part, to the accessibility provided by the interstate highway system and the growth of truck transport that allowed businesses, manufacturers, to, to grow, develop, locate in the Sun Belt. This was an important factor there. Uh, studies of the Appalachian highways uh, done as well showed that there was some, uh, some limited amount of impact that the highways themselves had on economic development in that lagging region. In the area of macroeconomic studies, uh, a study by Mira for Japan showed a fairly strong output elasticity for investment in uh, transport capital. And uh, that provided, or at least provided, some of the just, uh, intellectual justification for increased investment uh, in, in that particular country. But it was a, a couple of studies by Ashour in the late 80s uh, that really uh, kicked off quite a bit of interest in this area of research. Uh, Ashour found very high public capital output elasticities for the United States and suggested that the declining economic fortunes of the U.S in the late 1980s was a result of not investing as much in transport infrastructure and it led to quite a policy debate about the proper level of infrastructure investments in the country. It also prompted critiques in many other studies during the 1990s. 
many of those studies found much smaller levels of, of uh, output elasticities than ash output did. A study by Bata and Brennan in 2003 summarized 40 studies that were done between 1989 and 1999. And uh, these were some of the results that they found. Um, the results of the output elasticity studies, these macroeconomic studies, found fairly wide ranges of results in terms of how much of an impact would be found. Likewise, those that calculated changes in the costs of production found pretty wide-ranging results, although not quite as much as the output elasticities. But the directions of both were in, in, the, in the direction where there were at least positive gains, that the output elasticities were positive and the costs declined, which is what you would expect based on the traditional theory. Uh, a number of studies uh, analyzed changes in employment, income, wages, or property values, and most of them tended to find positive relations between uh, the investment in transport capital and economic benefits. So overall, based on those 40 studies, the uh, hypothesis that they proposed, that public sector investments in transport infrastructure would result in long-term economic benefits on the production or supply side, um, was, was not rejected so that they, they uh, felt that uh, their, their review could not reject this basic hypothesis. What I did then was to take a look at empirical studies from 1999 to 2009. I conducted a search using the ISI Web of Science, and I uncovered 56 studies that had looked at this relation. Of those 56, 43 had positive results, in other words, that there was a finding that the, that the transport infrastructure investment had a positive impact on economic growth and development, while 13 uh, found either no impact or negative results. Again, there was a very wide variation in the results um, overall, though more modest than the earlier studies. The other things I found is that the middle-income developing countries, for example, China and India, uh, had much greater e economic impacts as a result of transportation. Uh, the more developed countries tended to have less. Uh, increasing number of historical studies, these are studies that picked different periods in time and history and tried to show the degree to which transport was really important to the uh, economic development of those countries. And those had some very strong evidence of that linkage or the relation between uh, transport investment and economic development. And then finally, uh, the importance of geographic and historic context. So much depends on which country you're looking at or what time period you're looking at to see what level of effect you're, you're, you're actually experiencing. The negative arguments that were made in these studies uh, are very much aligned with what the theory would suggest, what, what others have, have written about. Uh, there is the line of thought that public investment is inherently wasteful and that the investment should be private. Uh, there was also the uh, perspective that the public investment could be much more productive if the government itself was more efficient. And so there are all kinds of issues associated with policies and funding structures, uh, corruption as an endemic problem that uh, leak away some of the funding, some of the investments involved. Uh, other needs are more important. Um, also, negative spillovers on adjacent reason, regions. There are a number of studies that showed that, yeah, uh, you build this transport link, 
and the areas that are directly impacted by it will experience some economic development, but it may come at the expense of other places that are a little farther afield that have a drainage of economic development or, or uh, less of a potential for economic development opportunities. And so in the end, these studies concluded that it was a zero-sum game, that what one region gained, another region lost. So you didn't really gain in net terms. And then finally, studies that show that transport investment, in particular highways, um, have a negative impact on the environment and as a result uh, are negatively impacting uh, on economic, long-term economic development. So that brings me to consider some of the recent debates in the United States and some of the issues with regards to the politics of transport investment. I'd first like to start with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009. After all of this debate and wrangling, this uh, legislation actually did go forward and uh, President Obama signed the legislation in Denver, Colorado, in my hometown. So that was rather an interesting thing. Uh, he actually had his, um, the, the whole uh, convention, the Democratic convention was held in Denver in August of 2008. So uh, Obama has, uh, has a connection to Denver, which is, which is kind of interesting. So he signed this into law and basically <clears throat> what uh, what it called for was for $787 billion in total investment, but of that, only $48 billion was to be dedicated to transportation, according to this distribution. $27 billion for highways, $8.4 billion for transit, $8 billion for high-speed rail, and then a lesser amounts for these other categories. Uh, just as a way of perspective, the 2005 Safety Lou uh, Transportation Authorization, which lasted for four years, authorized $286 billion. So the $48 billion is really less than one year's worth of regular appropriations. So in terms of total impact, at least in transportation, it wasn't a huge amount of money. So that's something that, that most people don't really appreciate. Uh, this a uh, chart comes from a Congressional Budget Office report that shows the estimated impact of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act on employment and economic output. And this is a rather busy chart, but the main thing here would be here at the bottom where it gives calendar year averages and in particular shows the effect of the stimulus package on the unemployment rate. And so here you can see that in 2009, the stimulus package is estimated to have reduced the unemployment rate by somewhere between 0.3 or 0.5%. In 2010, it's estimated to have reduced it by 0.7 to 1.8. For 2011, the estimates are 0.5 to 1.4 lower, and then it's going to drop off by 2012 when the funding really starts to run out. So in terms of overall effect, uh, maybe it dropped unemployment by 1%. Some people say that and say it, it was a marginal impact. Other people say, well, yeah, but at least I kept my job, and so did many people in my community. This has been a very hotly debated issue. In fact, some uh, uh, politicians now routinely refer to the Stimulus Act as the failed Stimulus Act that becomes a standard lingo, whereas others, though, say, 
that it did forestall an even worse situation that might have occurred. So it's still uh, quite a debatable topic. One of the projects that has received a lot of attention is a tunnel that has been in the planning stages for years. It would be built between New York and New Jersey uh, underneath the Hudson River. And this project, which would double the passenger rail capacity in that corridor, uh, was to cost $8.7 billion and would be shared amongst Amtrak, uh, the Port Authorities of New York and New Jersey, and the state of New Jersey. They each were going to split the $8.7 billion project. When uh, Governor Chris Christie was elected in 2009, and during the period of 2010, he looked at this project and decided <clears throat> that it would leave New Jersey in a very difficult position. And so he actually stopped the project and claimed that New Jersey would not be contributing to building this tunnel. Uh, and the specter of Boston's Big Dig project, which was way over budget to cost billions of dollars more than it was supposed to cost, was a big factor in his decision to cancel this project. Because according to the agreement, if there were any cost overruns, New Jersey itself would be the one responsible for covering those cost overruns. And so he objected to that, and uh, this caused a huge outcry and uh, led to a lot of discussion about whether or not we should be investing in important transport infrastructure projects such as this, or whether uh, the, the fiscal, uh, fiscally conservative route uh, was really the better approach to take on projects like this. Uh, really quite a bit of, of uh, controversy about it propelled Christie into the national spotlight, and now there are a number of people who would like to see him run for president in 2012 because he's taken such a hardline approach in cutting government budgets and uh, trying to balance the state budget of New Jersey. And the final one that I want to talk about is the Federal High Speed Rail Program. This has been a, uh, another very controversial and uh, uh, interesting issue, generating a lot of interest uh, amongst commentators across the spectrum in the U.S. The basic idea here is that um, there are certain corridors within the United States that would link metropolitan areas together that are not too far apart uh, in which you could have a fairly high level of demand and in which uh, high-speed rail could be quite competitive in comparison to highway or air traffic, uh, air travel. Um, currently, the only one that operates that's at all close to being considered high-speed is the Northeast Corridor, which is the one in green, linking together Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. The other corridors <coughs> here are all uh, projected corridors in terms of high-speed rail. Uh, some of these may very well uh, have the ability to, to be successful in the long run, and uh, planning has been undertaken to try to develop these corridors. As I mentioned before, in the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act, uh, $8 billion was allocated to high-speed rail development. This map shows a more detailed picture of the progress that's being made along some of these corridors. The ones that are in the dark orange color, the solid orange color, are those that have corridor development programs in place. The ones with the dashed orange lines are those that have projects that are laying the foundation 
for high-speed rail. And then the thin black line, which is where Denver is out here. <laughs> this is uh, way out in the future and probably never going to happen. But uh, because there has been some interest amongst the states <clears throat> involved there, they at least drew the line. So that allowed this to happen maybe sometime way, way into the future. But interestingly, after the elections of 2010, there were new governors that were elected in the states of Wisconsin, Ohio, and in Florida. And each of these three governors has rejected federal funds for building high-speed rail in their states. Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin has become famous most recently for uh, taking on uh, teachers' unions in Wisconsin and uh, outlawing, or at least wanting to limit, collective bargaining in the state of Wisconsin on behalf of teachers because of uh, his desire to uh, cut the budget in Wisconsin. Education is, is one of the main, main uh, cost items there. Uh, so for him, philosophically, this was an easy call. The same thing is true for uh, Governor Kasich in Ohio and Governor Scott in Florida. These are all, these governors are all Republicans and they all are influenced by uh, the Tea Party movement in the United States. And so they're taking very seriously the call to limit uh, government spending. And they see uh, these high-speed rail funds as one way of, of showing that they are not going to contribute to increasing the federal deficit. So uh, this has been a, a very interesting thing. The response of the administration is, well, if you don't want the money, we'll give it to those who will. So uh, California is moving forward. Illinois is moving forward. Several other states are moving forward on it. So we'll, we'll see how this, this plays out in the long run. One of the things, though, that these governors really didn't talk about, and in fact, has not received that much attention, are the purported environmental benefits of high-speed rail and in general the, the issue with regards to uh, impacts of transport on um, uh, climate change and global warming. And just to give you an indication of the prevailing, or not prevailing, but current attitude among some of our political leaders today regarding the issue of global warming, I wanted to show you this quick YouTube video which depicts the governor of West Virginia at the time, who's now the senator of West Virginia, um, and what his views are on a proposed cap-and-trade bill with regards to emissions. I'm Joe Manchin. I approve this act because I'll always defend West Virginia. As your senator, I'll protect our Second Amendment rights. That's why the NRA endorsed it. I'm Joe Manchin. Uh, I'll I approve this act because I'll always defend West Virginia. As your senator, I'll protect our Second Amendment rights. That's why the NRA endorsed me. I'll take on Washington and this administration to get the federal government off of our backs and out of our pockets. I'll cut federal spending, and I'll repeal the bad parts of Obamacare. I sued EPA, and I'll take dead aim at the cap-and-trade bill. Because it's bad for West Virginia. The interesting thing about this is that he's a Democrat. <laughs> you can just imagine what others would say. Um, exit. There we go. And he was elected as a senator. Uh, West Virginia, of course, is a state that has a uh,
very large coal industry. And so for him and his economic constituents, uh, a cap-and-trade bill would be deadly because of the reliance that West Virginia has upon coal. And so that's the, the political motivation for this. But uh, it's, it's rather interesting to see this uh, depicted in such a way. So in terms of conclusions, I just wanted to wrap up here by uh, saying that the theoretical and empirical support for positive economic benefits from transportation infrastructure investment is, uh, is, is still relatively strong, uh, however subject to important limitations. Uh, a minority of the studies, though, that I investigated have not found economic benefits, and, and it's interesting to examine the reasons why these economic benefits have not been discovered. Uh, infrastructure alone will not guarantee economic success, but in general, the positive stories are more numerous than the negative ones. Uh, the empirical studies uh, underscore the importance of geographical and historical context, and I, I really want to emphasize that point. And then finally, the uh, era of transport funds themselves were relatively small, have had marginal economic impacts, but have set the stage for larger policy uh, issues with regards to the next authorization. And this very final slide is just something that I put in because I know that this series is geared to thinking about areas for future research. And so uh, these are just some things that I would suggest would be important to look at in the future. Uh, the proper role in the type of transport in fostering economic development. Uh, this kind of conforms to, to the kind of work that David's been doing, looking at this, uh, uh, this uh, the um, uh, separating out transport growth and economic growth, that it's not just simply sheer volume or distance involved, but that you have to look at the type of transport uh, and what is the proper role of transport, which modes are really the most uh, appropriate that we should be investing in. So I believe there needs to be better methods in terms of project analysis, more emphasis on selectivity and efficiency, uh, and then differentiating the economic impacts between modes. And interestingly, the Smart Growth America Coalition just released a report last year that said that investment in public transit projects actually had a much higher level of economic impact in the form of creating more jobs, more employment, than investment in highways. So it's those sorts of things that are, are going to become more important in the future. Uh, continuing comparisons between projected and actual results, I think that that needs to go on because a lot of these studies have really large uh, projected impacts of what's going to happen. And unless these things are followed up, unless there's constant scrutiny of whether or not those projections have come about, um, then there's no accountability. So I think it is the role of academics to be involved in uh, looking back at those earlier studies and seeing to what degree have those projections panned out and to call those people for, for, uh, uh, for uh, coming up with with faulty projections in many cases. And then finally, uh, to continue looking at case studies uh, because of the importance of geographic and historic context. There's much can, that can be learned from doing very detailed case study analyses on uh, this subject area. So with that, I thank you. Thank you.